And at the Charlotte Coliseum, no disqualification. Dick Slater and Bob Orton Jr. versus Ric Flair and Wahoo McDaniels. Flair talks about his baby. Flair talks about how great Wahoo McDaniels is beside his side. Flair talks about putting Bob Orton Jr. and Dick Slater in the hospital. No disqualification. That means anything goes. Well, you know something, Ric Flair? And you're listening to this real close. Because that ambulance can take you just as well as it can take Bob Orton Jr. and I. And Bob Orton Jr. and I are not backing up because you don't have a ball bat anymore. You're a man just like us. And you can feel the pain because you know what pain feels like. Hello there, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, coming at you with another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. And we got a different format this time around. Instead of focusing on one subject, we actually have a bunch of sh- subjects to talk about because it's been a while since we've been on the air. And uh, it's uh, not something we we enjoy going more than uh, a couple weeks without doing a show. But, you know, sometimes that's just how the cookie crumbles. But this episode this volume of classic wrestling memories we're going to talk about three people that passed since our last show all three of them having uh, pretty big names for themselves in the business we're going to talk dick slater jose lothario and larry madizic and fortunately i don't have to do it alone i do have with me from the padded cell in south kakalaki crazy train jonathan bullock all aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yeah, it's uh, lost three big names. That seems to always happen in threes like we talk about. Um, one or all three of these individuals will more than likely or sometime down the road get more emphasized. We have talked a lot about Dick Slater already when we uh, talked about Dusty taking over the book in Florida in the late 70s. He was definitely a part of that. Uh, mm-hmm. We haven't talked much about Jose or Larry Matisic before, but I think they're you know they're both – Definitely worthy of us talking a little bit about. And I'm kind of excited for the second half of the show. Um, opened up my little black book again and found another wrestling wayward brother from back in the day on the indies. A great manager, uh, Al Getz, is going to come on. He's got a new project he's working on called Charting the Territories. And it's all about looking back at where exactly do you stack guys up from the bottom to the top of the card back in the territory days. And he starts in 1966 and he'll be on in the second half to talk about that and give us more details. And, and I think I'm looking forward to that conversation. I think it's going to be going to be quite fascinating. I've had the opportunity to read a couple of these blogs and go to his website. And, I, and as a, as a big fan of wrestling and wrestling history, he's really putting an exhaustive amount of, of research and time into it. And, and the way he's doing it is just fascinating, but I'll hold that off for him to explain that all to y'all in the second half of the show. And if you want to follow along in the show notes for this episode, for this volume, we can be found at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com slash 24, just the number 24. That will bring you to the show notes on this particular volume. So without further ado, let's jump into the talent that we've lost. Uh, We'll start off with Dick Slater. And um, this is a guy that I was definitely familiar with he was one of the names that was coming up frequently in the after mags and he really had a career kind of all over the place uh many different territories he grew up in florida uh went to the same high school as people like mike graham so he kind of had that association with wrestling i believe he's about the same age as paul orndorff uh, trained with guys like jack briscoe uh bob roop uh, Hiro Matsuda, uh, Florida crew, 
We've talked yeah, about them yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, if yeah, you trained in Florida in that era, that was who you got stretched by. And I do mean that literally. You got stretched right. by some of those guys and you got right. trained. But anyway. Yeah. And all of those names are essentially Hall of Fame caliber talent, well, whether we're talking about sure. Hall of Fame or, or elsewhere. And so naturally, that would mean that his first run was in Florida under Eddie Graham. And he did have some success there. Uh, tagging with the likes of Dusty Rhodes and Johnny Weaver. And I'm assuming this would have been the, about the time Dusty was still a heel in Florida, right? Late 60s, early 70s? Uh, yes, yeah. Dusty didn't turn babyface to what was it, 74? So we talked about that on the Florida episode. Yeah, of course, that, yeah, the, famous, the famous angle with that Gary Hart and Pac song, which is to, my de- to this day still one of, I think, probably three or four best babyface turns ever, but you've, you've agreed with that, so I don't think we need to go over that anymore. <laughs> right, you know? right. And, and we cover that story in detail in our 11th volume that is actually dedicated to championship wrestling from Florida. We had Train's good friend Chris Nelson as a guest on that episode. So if you want to hear us talk about Dusty and some of these other talent that came through the Florida territory, check out volume 11. Now, Train, uh, I think it's safe to say that the probably highest profile run that Dick Slater had probably would have been the early 80s, uh, mm-hmm. especially leading into the original Starcade, because he was part of that infamous angle where Harley Race had that epic promo about take the damn money. And He was one of the guys that took the damn money, him and Bob Orton. Mm-hmm. They turned yeah. on Flair. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get, I want to backtrack a little bit. I think, you know, okay. Dick, and, and the, stories are, the stories are famous or infamous, depending on your point of view. Dick already had a reputation as a badass and a tough guy before he ever got in the business. Uh, like you said, he he grew up with Mike Graham. Uh, Mike was, you know, the son of the legendary promoter Eddie Graham down there, and Mike was a shooter. And Mike was a legitimate, you know, all state level wrestler in high school. Dick ran with him. Dick, uh, there's a real famous story where Dick, uh, when he was still a senior in high school, I believe, so he's a like 17, 18 year old young man. Uh, got into a fight with John Matuzak, who went on to have a you know a, a storied career with the Los Angeles well, at the time Oakland Raiders, um, mm-hmm. and uh, was playing football at the University of Tampa, which is now the University of South Florida. Uh, and apparently John Matuzak, who was by no stretch of the imagination not a tough guy, he has a reputation. He's gone on to acting as a tough guy. Was flirting with Dick Slater's girlfriend. Makes sense, you know. He's a twenty twenty one year old. College football player. He's flirting with the cute mm-hmm. 18-year-old high school senior. Well, Dick apparently took exception to that and beat the crap out of him. And he, and John Matuzak was bigger than Dick. I mean, Dick was not a, a big guy, but he wasn't a small guy. But here's an 18-year-old kid beating up a 21-year-old man. That's that's That says a lot, doesn't it? I mean, about mm-hmm. your toughness and not, not to be messed with. So he was already famous before he got trained. And he did have a football career at University of Tampa himself. He played with Paul Orndorff. Um, you know, now University of South Florida has kind of got a reputation as one of the top <clears throat> non-Power 5 conference teams in the country, along with UCF and Boise State and a few other schools. But before that, they were the University of Tampa, and uh, that's probably their most famous player up until these recent years was probably Paul Orndorff. So um, he, he played there with Paul, and uh, we all know about Paul's toughness. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. sadly, we can't ask Leon White anymore, but I think he could attest. To t- <laughs> so he, that's the crew mm-hmm. he ran with. Mike Graham, Paul Orndorff. I think that speaks a lot to the, the Dick was not a guy to be messed with, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I digress. We can get back to the Crockett stuff now. But you're right. He did kind of jump around early in his career. But if you've listened to the show enough, you know that that's fairly normal. That's just the way the territories worked. You had your local hometown guys that could homestead uh, in an area. But for the most part, even the mid-card guys were bouncing anywhere from six months to a year to a new territory. So Right. Especially if they were a heel. Right. No different than anybody else. And, and then you, one of the fascinating things, Dick, Dick is the guy who did do this. You could, the way the territories are set up with just regional television, you could be a heel in one territory, then go to another territory and be a babyface. And Dick mm-hmm. did do that. You know, so. I think it's safe to say that probably the majority of his career, he was a, a heel, if I have my uh, information sure. correct, right? Sure. Yeah. He does, but I, I, when he had his babyface runs and he had a couple here, well, obviously he had one here in the Carolinas before he turned on Flair. You know, that was the, that, that angle doesn't work if Bob Orton and, and, well, it would have worked if Bob Orton and Dick and Dick Slater had attacked Flair because they would have taken the damn money. But it was more impactful on an emotional level for us as fans because they were they were presented on television as Flair's friends and buddy and and and, and fellow babyfaces. So to have those guys turn on him, it meant just that much more. Harley Race and his nefarious ways and his money had gotten the best of these guys. You know, simple storytelling, but effective. Mm-hmm. You know? And there is a name you're going to hear a little bit later on when we talk uh, Larry Matizic, and that, that is the Orton name because that that's kind of the territory that the Ortons came from. But we'll get to that later. Uh, now, during that run in Mid-Atlantic, uh, we were talking about going kind of all over the place. Slater was actually working for, I think, three or four Different uh, promotions <laughs> at the same time. He was with the Crockett's. I believe he was in Houston working for Paul Bosch. He'd go to San right. Antonio with Joe Blanchard, Joe Blanchard. and then he'd uh, be in what, what would become the Mid-South Territory with Bill Watts. Do I have all those names right? He was mostly a Southern star, though I, th- I do think he had a run uh, once or twice up in New York. I'm not 100% mm-hmm. sure, but I think he did. Yeah, yeah, he did, and I believe he was a babyface for that run. But his WWF right. run... I think a lot of historians believe he was one of the guys that was underutilized. Yeah, he could have right. done better than he did if he was given better material. Right. D- Dick was was definitely a, a southern based guy, though. He worked most of the southern territories. At, at, at certain times, he had the book, you know. So he was a creative guy. Um, my understanding is Dick was a great guy, uh, but sometimes could be difficult to work with. Um, Dick, by his own admission, and we'll, you know, later in his life, this this came to be. He had some issues, some demons um, that I think probably affected his personality at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but my personal take is a is a fan growing up watching these Southern territories, specifically the Crockett's. But I also watched a lot of Georgia and a lot of Florida, a little bit of Continental, a little bit of Mid South. Dick was that guy who was he was never the top guy, but he was the setup guy. You know, he was the he was the 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 upper mid card healer babyface wherever whatever role he was cast in at that point. You know, he wasn't the main villain, but he was the villain's evil sidekick. Or he wasn't the the top hero, but he was the hero's best friend. You, you see what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And that was oh yeah. Like when you when you talk the Crockett turn in '83, that's exactly how it was presented. Flair was the top babyface, and Steamboat was probably one A. You know, or Steamboat Youngblood is the tag team top guys. Orton and Slater were presented as their best buds. You know, those three guys were your top baby faces. These two other guys were the guys that worked out at the gym with them, had to, took the families to the barbecue, hung out, rode up and down the road. That's how they were presented. 
you know, and, and so and, and, and to me as a fan, that's how I always perceived it. I never saw Dick as a main event guy, but I saw Dick as a top guy, if that delineation makes sense. Right. I, I could not see Dick Slater in a one on one match for any title in a main event, even in a, in a, in a, a midsize building like Greenville Memorial Auditorium. But I could definitely see him in a, in, a, in a tag or a six man tag in the main event with with the top. You see that kind of thing, you know. Right. If they if they have that big six man tag right before the big show to set it up, you know, he's one of the three guys on the babyface or heel side going into that big show. That's where I always saw him as a fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that you understand what I'm saying when I explain all that. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of tag teams, where I saw him most was in the early '90s in WCW, and he came in and out of WCW a few times. And I think he did some Japan tours in between, but he right. had a team that I absolutely love now. I did not understand it at the time between the with the history of these guys, but that was the team called the Hardliners in the early '90s. And it was Dick Slater and Dick Murdoch. And both wow. those guys, kind of genuine tough guys and were traditionally heels. And now I watch their matches and I get it. But back then, yeah. you know, when I when I was still enjoying stuff by like the Rockers or the Hart Foundation or to give a WCW example, a team like the Steiners that mm-hmm. were more athletic, uh, maybe a little bit more flamboyant. Especially Younger. talking about the team like the he, the, the, yeah. Especially talking like a team like the Freebirds, but there's just something inherently cool when you're older about the old badass tough guys that just pound people. You know, that's there's always going to be a measure of draw to that. I think the only thing I never got about that gimmick, and once again, it comes from a guy who grew up in the South watching the Southern territories, was the, I loved the gimmick. I loved the pairing. Do you remember the, the kind of the persona they had him in was? Almost like they were supposed to be like mob hitmen. You know, they wore like mm-hmm. members only jackets and 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 um like uh the Kangol type hats, flat build hats to the ring. And Dick Slater, the whole time I'd seen Dick Slater, he was kind of a Freebert light. He was kind of just a good old Southern boy, you know, rebel flag shirts and jeans and and and, and Dick, of course, was 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 a Texas guy, he was kind of a cowboy almost, you know. So to see he's Captain Redneck, Dick Murdoch, and to see mm-hmm. them in this, you know, I understand you have to understand WCW at that time. They were trying to present things as less Southern so that it would appeal to a larger fan base. Right. Um, and, and I think that that's why the young, the young, the, 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 the wild eyed Southern boys of Tracy Smothers and uh, Scott or Steve Armstrong were changed to the young pistols. You know, mm-hmm. they made them cowboys from good old Southern boys in Confederate gear. It was. Uh, I don't know. That, that was a weird time for WCW, but that's when you started mm-hmm. watching. So, yeah, but right. you know, it is what it is. I, right. he, all, another story of, of, of Dick's toughness, go back to when you're talking about when he was running Mid-South. We'll go back a little farther than that. Dick was intricately involved in that whole Black Saturday, the, 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 that whole era of Atlanta, Georgia Championship right. Wrestling. He was involved in. He was, he was, the, he was really tight with, with, with uh, Buzz Sawyer. They were running buddies. They tagged together a lot. Um, you know, all the guys that you think of as stars from that era in Atlanta, Tommy Rich, Freebirds, all those guys, right? Tony Atlas. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had the book at one time and, you know, all those changes were happening. And my understanding is they kind of got on when the Crockett's took that, took that territory over, they kind of got on Dick and, and Dick, he booked something where basically it was him and Buzz 
as baby faces, you know, and they were character baby faces, did not give as much to the Midnight Express, who were the hot heel tag team coming in as now Dennis and Bobby and Corny being professionals, respecting Buzz and Dick, did the match, but Dennis Connor even went to Cornette and said, I don't know about that. You might need to go to, to Dusty and talk about it. That ain't right. That ain't what they're supposed to be doing. And years later, Dick would admit that he just said, screw it. He knew what was happening. He saw the writing on the wall. So he just like, I'm going, I'm going out strong. You know, so that's what I mean when I say sometimes he could be difficult to work with. He knew that they, that Dusty was going to take over the book. And so he just didn't mm-hmm. care. Uh, I, that was part of what precipitated his move to Mid-South. And there's another infamous story there. Uh, he had met Dark Journey. Uh, not a, not that atypical for wrestlers of the time. She was a dancer, an exotic dancer. He had met at a club. She looked good. Hey, you want to go to the ring with me? Sure. And this yeah. parlayed itself into a romantic relationship. Well, it was somewhat volatile, and uh, there was a split up while they were in Mid-South, and she was riding with Dick, and Dick said, you know, the heck with it. I ain't taking you no more. And uh, you find your own ride to the building. Now, if you've listened to our show, you know that there were two things you didn't do if, if you worked in Bill Watts' territory. You didn't no-show or show up late, and two, you didn't get in a bar fight and lose. Those are the two things you did not do in Bill Watts' territory. Mm-hmm. So Dark Journey, knowing this, is terrified she's going to miss the show. So there's a young wrestler that we all love and respect, and we've talked about a lot on this show, who's just starting in the territory by the name of Steve Borden, you know, Sting. And mm-hmm. she goes to Sting, who's a heel. And she's like, hey, look, I need a ride to the next building. He doesn't know the politics and all the things going on behind there. He's just a young guy trying to trying to get better and learn, yeah. earn to keep his spot, you know? Yeah, he's, he's just trying to do the right thing, basically, right? Right. It's, yeah, exactly. And, and we all know Sting's a super nice guy. I mean, that's that's well mm-hmm. documented, right? Yeah. I can personally vouch for that. Sting is a very – one or two times I've had interaction with a man who's been nothing but cordial and nice to me, respectful, even though he's a superstar and a Hall of Famer and I'm a nobody. You know, that, that goes a long way for me. He's like, sure, I'll give you a ride. Well, he gives her a ride, to, and I was someone to say it was Tulsa or something. It was you know one of the the major towns in the territory because yeah. this would have and been, I think, uh, eighty seven, eighty eight, somewhere. Yeah, there. Sh- shortly before that Crockett uh, Mid South merger, I think. Right, some eighty six, eighty seven. But it was yeah, because you remember when that merger happened, Dark Journey actually came in and she joined. She joined the Four Horsemen for a while. She was with Tully. Which uh, mm-hmm. she's one of the more underrated valets of that era, in my opinion. But I digress. We're talking about Dick Slater. So it, I haven't talked about it a lot, but one of the things that a lot – it's still to this day. It's not as bad now as it was back then. There's always going to be in every locker room one or two vets who've seen everything and have done everything. And the way they entertain themselves is not by pulling ribs, not by going out with the boys afterwards. It's stirring the pot. That's just how they entertain. It's kind of twisted, but it's just what they do, you know? Yeah. I think it's safe to say uh, you'd understand it if you were there. Does that make, does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I don't know who the, who they were, but apparently there were a few of those in this locker room. I have, knowing who was in that locker room at the time, I have my own suspicions who it probably was. <coughs> Michael Hayes. Um, excuse me. Um, <laughs> <coughs> Terry Gordy. <coughs> excuse me. Um, that, that, that stirred up Dick. Um, wouldn't he be? Nah, that's not really Gary Hart style. Plus, I'm not sure if he was in on that run, but I, I get a feeling the Freebirds probably were involved in this. Just saying, it's their mm-hmm. it's their sense of humor. St- it's stirring Dick up about. Did you see who Dark Journey rode to the building with? Well, Dick not understanding everything and being who Dick was with his short fuse, he was a babyface. He left the. This is back. This is Bill Watts, who's you know old school as it gets, and, and in a big building where you had two separate locker rooms because it's kayfabe days. He walks out of the babyface locker room, goes. 
to the heel locker room. Now, Sting has never been reported or professed uh, publicly to be a tough guy. Okay, we we can agree on that. Yeah. But he's still six four, six five, two hundred and something, sixty something, seventy something pound man that's just carved out of stone, and he's young. Yeah. You know, uh, Sting is. You take a look at Sting, especially in that era. He's not a guy you're going to mess with. Let's just put it that way, right? Yeah, and th- well, to to put it in perspective for me, you know, you've probably seen the picture I have in my Facebook where I'm standing with yeah. Sting. And I was heavier then than I than I am now, but I was six one, about two twenty at that point. And Sting's like a whole forehead taller than I am. Yeah, he's a big man, isn't he? You've met Sting, mm-hmm. so you know what I'm talking about. Brother's a big Deceptively man, big, you know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's ex- especially in the lower body. You know, he's he's got huge thighs and, and calves. That guy, he don't miss leg day. I'll just put it to that. But anyway, <laughs> Dick whoops his butt <laughs> and to the point where he literally gave him an old school bully swirly. He took Sting's head, put it in the toilet of the locker room, and flushed the toilet. Now, Sting, to his credit, a lot of guys would try to you know put their own spin on it, especially considering he has had more success and fame in his career than Dick Slater. He never shied away from it. He admits it if you ask him about it, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, it's just that's that was Dick. Dick was a, they called him unpredictable Dick Slater for a reason. Uh, it wasn't just in front of the camera, as the stories I just told you. It, it was behind the camera too. So the the lesson that a, that a young Steve Borden learned is find out who you're giving a ride to before you give it to him. I guess that's the moral of that yeah. story, right? <laughs> but, yeah, and I think maybe you might have inadvertently given somebody uh, an indie gimmick. Now have somebody that, whose name is Dick and call him unpredictable. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, they kind of, I can't remember which was it, was it Gordon or was it Bob Cottle that used to kind of put an emphasis on that? And one of them did. I don't know if it was intentional or not. You know, I wouldn't put anything past Bob Cottle and, and Gordon Soldy because, as you know, they're both on my Mount Rushmore of announcers. So uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I just don't know if that's the way either one of those gentlemen's minds worked. But anyway. Yeah, that's that's a. I thought that was a fun little story. It's 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 like I said, it's 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 pretty well known. Cornette's talked about it. Jr's talked mm-hmm. about it. Even Sting has talked about it publicly. So uh, yeah, and I think I heard it on uh, Tony Schiavone's show. Also, I think I could be wrong. There you go. I mean, it's, it's like it's it, it's it's one of those things that it's not like up there with you know Hogan slamming Andre. But if you've been around the business as a pretty dedicated fan, and if you've definitely been in the business as a worker, you've heard the story once or twice. You know, the mm-hmm. time Sting got a swirly from Dick Slater. So, and, you know, if you know Bill Watts, I don't know if he ever found out about it. He probably thought it was funny, you know, and Bill. But, you know, doesn't mean that if, – if I know this. If if Bill found out, Dick got fined. I can tell you that. I don't mm-hmm. know. I can't verify that. But my gut feeling says if, if it found out, this money came out of Dick's pocket. So, <laughs> but – now, aside from that uh, Crockett run, that kind of early 80s, is there any other era that you could think of that he might have been known for? No. I mean, the hardliner stuff, I think, was one of his last national stuff. I did love the stud stable stuff that he did there uh, right after that, you know, mid-nine, right before, you know, the Crow, NWO. I think mm-hmm. that the stud stable was highly underrated. If you, for, if you remember, in that era, the stud stable was Ro- Robert Fuller as Colonel mm-hmm. Rob Parker as the manager, uh, Arn Anderson, Terry Funk. Dick Slater and uh, Jimmy Golden, known as Bunkhouse Buck in WCW. That's five Hall of Famers. Okay, now I know mm-hmm. that people think Dick Slater, Jimmy Golden, Rob Fuller—they're not the same as Terry Funk and Arn Anderson. At a national level, you're probably right, but at a regional level here in the South, those three guys are stars. Okay, right. Jimmy Golden and the Fullers—they're everything to, to to Tennessee and, and Florida wrestling. And and I mean, they ran this they ran Southeast for years. You know that those families did. We we're sitting here. You know, giving a tribute to Dick. Dick was a big player for most of the seventies through the eighties in the Southern territories. So yeah, 
Uh, I mean, and my question is, the worst interview of all was probably Jimmy Golden. He wasn't a bad interview. Why do they need Robert Parker? It's not like Terry Funk, Arn Anderson, and Dick Slater all couldn't talk. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, but then again, you know, why was Bobby Heenan with Nick with Nick Bockwinkle and, and Ray Stevens? They they didn't need talkers either, you know. But. Yeah. Or or somebody <laughs> like Rick Rude, you know, in WWE, he was paired with yeah. Bobby Heenan, and WCW, he was paired with Paul Heyman, both of whom why are do, really good talkers. But Rude can why cut do a any, pretty good promo yeah. on his own right. Yeah, why do any of the four horsemen, except for Barry Windham and Lex Luger, need J.J. Dillon? You know, <laughs> they don't. Right. Now, I mean, we know why Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton needed Jim Cornette. We know, well, I mean, even the Road Warriors. Animal was okay. Hawk was a really good promo. Why did they need Paul Ellering? You know, why did, but it, but it worked. Um, but that was probably his last night. I remember that. I, I always thought that the stud stable was a little underappreciated, much like I think the Dangerous Alliance, but it was just a, a very bad time for wrestling as a whole. And WCW was definitely in a transition. Dick was in the, was in the, you know, the, the twilight of his career. So d- Terry Funk, I would say Terry Funk was in the twilight of his career, but Terry T- Funk's been in the twilight of his career since the mid eighties and he's still damn good. So I mm-hmm. mean, it's a, and he's, as far as I know, he's still going. I think he actually finally has really retired. God, God love Terry. Um, it's, um, so, you know, I, I, I know he had some issues in the, in the mid two thousands, uh, where he got arrested for some domestic violence. Uh, he was very candid about it, was involved with Oxycontins. Um, so, um, just, it's kind of, it's kind of a sad story. That that there, you know, the, the it's but it's also not surprising. Guys from that era, a lot of them got hooked to painkillers. It was a very yeah. physically hard life. Um, glad to know that Dick got, uh, you know, out of jail. Seemed to have learned from his experience and um, was contrite. I know his health was bad. He put a lot of weight on. Uh, some of the guys from his era that I know had talked about. He he was in and out of, I believe, a nursing home there the last few years of his life, which is hard for me to fathom. You know, with Dick being the, the very high energy guy he was. So, um, you know, he'll definitely be missed. He was a one of a kind. He was mm-hmm. just a rebel. And, and when I, you've heard me talk at length many times about my attraction to the business was this was a business full of rebels, guys that just were going to do their own thing. And Dick, he fit that mold 110%. You know, and um, it, personally, he was a guy I, I stole stuff from. I don't know if you, you know stealing, but he was a guy who could. What I respected about Dick Slater as a performer was he was one of those guys who was very believable as a brawler and a tough guy because he legitimately was. But they could do that in a worked way in the ring, but still incorporate comedy and entertainment into his matches. Uh, when you go back to to volume eleven and listen to us talk, there's a story where me and Chris Nelson talk about uh, a memory I have where he was in one of those six mans I was talking about where he was the setup for the for the big show, and he grabbed one of those super oversized foam cowboy hats off of off of a fan the front row and put it on and was doing dusty elbows to people. It was just it was hilarious to me. <laughs> and I mean, he was just he's, he's unpredictable. You never knew what he was going to do, and um, I stole some of his spots, some of his in ring style. I learned a lot from just watching Dick Slater. Um, personally, it, it, it's, he was much in the vein of a Terry Funk and a Roddy Piper in that way. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Valiant, where you could incorporate entertainment value and humor into a match that looked like a serious athletic endeavor where he was trying to win the fight. You know, uh, right. I think that's lost in some of the new flippy flop guys. Now they're so worried about the entertainment value. They forget that the most entertaining thing to people is to suspend their disbelief and make them believe that you're actually fighting to win. So, right. Kudos to Dick for that, and uh, thank you, brother, for you know inspiring me. Um, but anyway, I guess we need to move on to the next uh, star that we've lost, sadly. Yes, Jose Lothario, 
was a guy who I think my generation and after probably will best remember him or associate him with being the guy that trained Shawn Michaels. And while that is true, he did train Shawn Michaels. I think he trained some other guys too. He really had a heck of an in-ring career uh, in the Southern areas, such as like uh, Texas and and such. He was pretty much all of his life, because we've talked about in our very early shows about Babyface 101 and Heel 101, you really don't see that many wrestlers only do one throughout most of their career. Most of the successful guys and girls, quite frankly, have wrestled both as a heel and as a face, depending on what they, where they are in the, in the storyline and such. You know, Hogan had a big heel run. Flair had a big heel run, all that. Uh, Jose Lothario was a babyface almost his entire career, so much so that his stories many times kind of went against common wrestling logic. And obviously, right. with logic, there are always exceptions. So he was the exception. And the logic that I'm talking about is when a wrestler gets seasoned enough, when they, when they, after they've achieved that veteran status for a while, it is very common for that person to turn heel and then feud with an up-and-comer to kind of help make the young guy's career. With Lothario, it was the opposite. He was so beloved and so popular that he didn't turn heel, and it was the young up-and-coming prospect that would turn on him, the master and mentor, and thus the fans would want to see the grizzled veteran put the cocky young hothead in his place. I mean, is that right. an accurate description, yeah. you think? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll get to a great example of that in a sec, but just step back for a second. There's things I think people need to think about Jose Lothario that, first off, his last name, Lothario. If you know Spanish, Lothario essentially translates into Casanova or you know, fantastic lover. He was a pretty boy babyface. He was a classic white meat babyface. Uh, and this was true. He was a good-looking guy when he was younger, and he had appeal that was across the board with blacks, whites, and Hispanics because obviously he's of Mexican descent. Um, and so that's kind of groundbreaking when you think about it. Here's a guy doing this in the 60s you know, and the, and the 70s appealing to multi-ethnic groups of ladies but also tough enough that he's also appealing to both multi-ethnic groups of men. He's probably one of the first – I don't know if he was the first. I don't, I'm sure he wasn't, but he was one of the first to truly be a bilingual star. If you notice, he had a lot of runs in Florida and Texas, areas where there's heavy pockets even in this time period of Hispanics and Spanish-speaking people. He could go out and cut a promo in both English and Spanish, much like the Guerreros, um, mm. which is why he was a star in Amarillo, why he was a star in El Paso for the Guerreros. Um, he was, t- and he was a top guy in some places. He was, a, he was a, now did he have a long sustained run as the top guy? No, sometimes he wouldn't a tag team, but he wouldn't be unusual for him to be the top baby face in the top feud, the territory for like a three or five month period, you know, and he drew money. Um, I think he's not a big guy. If, if those of you that only remember him as Shawn Michaels, uh, mentor, when he was coming to the ring with Shawn in the, in the, in the nineties, Shawn's not a big guy and Shawn was bigger than him. So he mm-hmm. was the prototype babyface that we talked about in babyface when he was a small guy, but scrappy, had fire when he made his comeback, was good looking. You wanted to cheer for him. Um, so I think he broke a lot of ground people don't think about. He's very awe-inspiring that he was he was a, a ethnic star in the South who was appealing across racial lines, you know? Um, and he wasn't black and he wasn't white, he was Hispanic and he was doing this. You know, so mm-hmm. he was appealing to the third major ethnic group here in the South. 
Um, just an, an amazing run. I the one that I the one I know the most because he does predate my time. But it it it, it speaks to what you're talking about, Seth. And his he wasn't the grizzled veteran who turned who turned heel. One of his early proteges was Gino Hernandez. Um, and Gino, same thing. You know, the, the, the handsome half breed. That was his gimmick. He was a good looking guy who looked. Gino Hernandez looked on the surface like a like a white meat baby face. He was a good looking guy. Ethnic background could have the had had you know that way he built like I said he built himself as the handsome half breed. He was half Italian, half Hispanic. So he could appeal to all these different you know ethnic groups, and he turned on Jose. And Jose and him had a fierce, fierce rivalry. I believe it was in San Antonio for Joe Blanchard, which would make sense because that was kind of the first territory that 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 uh, Gino worked. But it culminated in a hair versus hair match, which Jose won. And then Gino left the territory and had his most famous run in Dallas, you know, in the world class. Well, you know, I mean, he obviously learned from that because when him and, and when Adam, when Chris Adams turned heel and started tagging with him against the Von Erics, it culminated in a hair versus hair match where. Adams and Chino got their heads shaved. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's a, uh, I, I can't say enough good things about Gino either. Uh, definitely a, a star that was lost way before his time. Um, uh, we, we probably need to do, do a show on, on not Gino specific, but maybe that whole, that whole region of Texas and that time frame. But, mm-hmm. you know, Jose was the guy who set up Gino for that. I don't know if Gino has the success he has in Dallas when let's be honest, it was the hottest territory in wrestling. When Gino was there and was a top guy, um, Jose set him up for that. So it's not just Shawn Michaels. He sent down that kind of path. Jose trained a lot of guys in that area. I mean, Joe Blanchard trained a lot of guys too. But, I mean, um, I, when, when we talk about Florida always being the Florida crew, being a Matsuda and Bob Roop and, and, and the Briscoes and, and Eddie Graham, well, Jose was one of those guys in South Texas. If you, got, if you came up in that era, pretty good chance that Jose was involved in your training. You know, so – I just think it's it's sad people only know him as the – it's just – he's like a lot of guys we talk about on this show. His best days were right before television. You know, uh, Not saying that he didn't do television. He obviously did, but it was in the days when the, the shows got taped over. So some of mm-hmm. it's just lost the time except for the people that were there in the building on, the, on that night. Um, but I, 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 will, I will definitely say the business does not become what it is uh, without Jose. And I can't underscore how impressive it is to me that – he was an he was an ethnic star who appealed to the masses across racial lines in the South. That's I don't think I don't think I have to say that. I mean, people understand what I'm saying. They get it, you yeah. know. Right. It would put him in the category of somebody like Eddie Guerrero or mm-hmm. um, junkyard dog. Even, right. Yeah. Or or probably even somebody like Rey Mysterio, who you know, especially with mm-hmm. kids, is going to be popular across the board. Right. 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 It's just where they could go into a an area where there's a little racial tension and everybody's on his side. That's amazing to me, you know? Right. Um, and, and we are becoming a country that rapidly has as many native Spanish speakers as it does English speakers in the United States. Well, he was doing both back 50 years ago. So what does that tell you? Doing promos yeah. that, that sold out buildings. So kudos to, to, to Jose. He will also definitely be missed. He's one of the unsung heroes of that era of wrestling, in my opinion. And winding up our, trio of tributes, so to speak. You know, I guess I just made that up on the spot. Uh, but the the last person we're going to talk about it, never really had an in-ring career. He wasn't a wrestler, wasn't a manager or anything like that. But Larry Matizic was pretty much like the sports casting or play-by-play play, uh, legend in St. Louis, especially all those years with wrestling at the chase, correct? Yeah. 
I mean, you have to understand St. Louis was very different than a lot of the other territories. Um, it was a one city territory that essentially ran one building, but it was the crown jewel of the NWA. No, in no small part because Sam Mushnick, who was the longtime president of, of the NWA and the most powerful man in wrestling for about a 20 year plus run there in the sixties and seventies until he stepped down. Um, he could do what Vince McMahon did, but Vince McMahon did it in several buildings across a territory. So when I say Vince McMahon, I mean Vince McMahon senior. Sorry, folks. Um, he could bring in talent from all over the country and they would work St. Louis and working St. Louis was a big deal. And Larry was his, his right hand man. And he was the announcer of their television show. Larry was a great announcer. I don't think Larry has the, I don't think Larry has the Lance Russell, Bob Cottle, Jim Ross, you know, that kind of, but I do think he's on the Boyd Pierce level. Just right below that. Does that make mm-hmm. sense when I say that? Yes. Yeah. You know, I would put him, if I had my second Mount Rushmore, it's probably Larry, Bill, uh, uh, Bill Mercer in Dallas, um, uh, maybe Tony Schiavone and, 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 and possibly, uh, you know, possibly, yeah, probably Boyd Pierce and, and, and Mid South. Mm-hmm. That's like my second Mount Rushmore after my first of Bob Cottle, Jim Ross, Gordon Soley. Uh, I might even put Shivani on that one. I'm not sure. I I got a, got several. I, I like Jerry Lawler. <laughs> Lawler could go in on. You know, Larry Lawler has an argument for being on the Mount Rushmore of in-ring performers, but we're not talking about Jerry Lawler. But yeah, mm-hmm. Larry Matisik was uh, was that was what I think fans knew him as. But what he did behind the scenes is much much more important. Um, he was the number two guy. You hear me just say Sam Mushnick was the most powerful man in wrestling. He was Sam's right hand man. That essentially by default made him the number two most powerful man around. The only guy that I, I could say maybe was more powerful, and it was only for part of the time Larry was involved there, would have been Jim Barnett. Those are definitely the three most powerful guys in the business. And you notice I did not mention Eddie Graham. I did not mention Big Jim Crockett. I did not mention Vince McMahon Sr. I did not mention Baba or Anoki. Those are the three guys who were the most powerful guys in, in wrestling at the time. You know? So right. you're talking about simply in the category of NWA. Movers, shakers. That- Right. Yeah. Right. And, and 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 even back then, you have to realize the delineation between the WWF, AWA, and the NWA was much thinner back then, and what what it, what it became, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty years later. So you know, they were they were those were the three most powerful guys. Uh, well, the way it's been described to me by many people, those who've listened to our show and who listen to other podcasts, specifically uh, Story Time with JJ Dillon, they know that Dusty is known as much for his booking as he was known for his wrestling. Mm-hmm. Especially what he did in Florida and here in the Carolinas. J.J. Dillon was always his right hand man. J- you know, it was in other words, Dusty was the big picture guy with the great ideas, and it was it was J.J.'s job to dot the I's and cross the T's, so to speak, and make sure everything worked. That's exactly the job Larry had for Sam Mushnick, but on a larger mm-hmm. level, not just in St. Louis specific, but for the entire NWA. Uh, I, I'm not sure. My research can't verify this. I would, I, I'm sure Dave Meltzer or somebody like that could correct me on this. I believe there was a time when Larry Matisik was was it was the he was his job to book the NWA World Champion. So we're talking the, the you know the Funks runs Briscoe that era of champions Gene Kaniski Thez, Thez at the end of his career Harley where it was his job to talk to the individual territorial promoters and the town promoters that those different territorial promoters had and say okay you're going to get the champion on this week and then once he had all that information get the flight schedules get the plane tickets and then you know print up that that schedule and then get that schedule and, and everything to the champion and then then follow up on it to make sure that he made the, his bookings that's a lot of work if you think about it. that is a full-time job you know mm-hmm. 
I know Jim Barnett did that for a while when he came back from Australia, but I think before the Jim Barnett started doing it, I think Larry Matisic did that. So when you name the names that I just I just listed, and he's the guy making sure they're in all these territories, do I need to say anything else about how important he was to the business in that era? I mean, it doesn't get much more elite than booking the NWA champion. And we, we no. touched on it a little bit earlier that St. Louis, you know, Missouri and Kansas City and such, that's mm-hmm. where the Orton family came from. I mean, Randy Orton, I think to right. this day still lives in, in St. Louis. So no, I, think was, I thought he lived in KC or maybe he does live in St. Louis. I think you're right. I think Randy, li- I think Randy lives in St. Louis and I think his dad lived in KC. Harley lived in KC, but um, right. cause it's so weird. Cause like I said, St. Louis is essentially a one city territory and Kansas city is its own territory right next to it. It's the central States territory, you know, because they ran like other towns in Kansas and they ran other towns in Missouri. Um, mm-hmm. but they didn't in St. Louis, but they, but I mean, so much. So think about it when, when, when Matt Mushnick stepped down from running, uh, the NWA, Bob Geigel was a new president. Well, he was out of Kansas city. So they just went right next door mm-hmm. to get the new president until, uh, Jim jr. Took over. And by that point, the NWA was dying and it essentially was a two horse race between Crockett's and, and McMahon, you know, so it kind of made right. sense. But even when, once that happened and Bob Geigel in Kansas city became the new head of of the nwa madison was still you know doing all the stuff with the chase and st louis was still a very significant city in wrestling it was until they kind of shut their doors which i want to say it was like an 83 84 does that sound about yeah, right to you? yeah i believe it was because larry went to work for vince uh for wwf i believe he did the local promoting for wwf events i might have my information crossed here right. but you know, kind of like th- those syndicated shows that you'd wa- watch on the weekends where mm-hmm. they'd have somebody plug the house the house show that's coming up next month. Right. That's the type of stuff that Larry did, right? Right. I mean, and that was that was par for the course then. You know, that that's like like if you look at Houston, Paul Bosch did not like Jim Crockett Jr. So when they got control of the NWA, he pulled out and called up Vince and Houston became a WWE town. And so Paul mm-hmm. did the same thing in Houston. So, you know, it's um. That's probably the other guy I would throw in with those with Madison, Mushnick and, and Barnett would be would be Paul Bosch, but I digress. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Once again, another one that's maybe maybe the only other one you could say was a one one town territory. Dallas seemed like it was a one town territory, but if you've ever been to the Met, to Dallas Metroplex, it's a huge city. It's uh, it's on par with Chicago, and you obviously know how big Chicago is, Seth. Right? They ran shows all over in different buildings in Dallas. They didn't do that. They ran two buildings in St. Louis: the Chase, which is a hotel. And it was always fascinating to me to see some of the old black and white, even that predates Larry in St. Louis, where this is in a ballroom where they've set a wrestling ring up and you've got people coming in a suit and tie and women in nice dresses to watch wrestling. And that's what Larry grew up on and was walking into when he got into the business. Yeah, that's that's hard to think of when you think of the these, you know, s- smoke filled, you know, small halls that you think of in like the, you know, the Carolinas or, or, or Florida or, or other Texas. That's not what was going on in St. Louis. It was, it right. was highbrow entertainment, you know? Right. Right. Or um, even comparing so, it to something today where everybody just kind of shows up in a t-shirt and chant along with what they want and such. And, you know, no, predominantly no. male audience uh, for the most part. It seems to me like when you watch those old videos and like I said, Larry was at the tail end of that, right? When he came in, it's almost like the fans were coming like you took a date to there. It wasn't like, you know, and it mm-hmm. wasn't like the, 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 like a date 
now where you, the boys, the boyfriend's a massive wrestling fan. He begs his girlfriend and she shows up just to support her man. Right. This looks right. like the women actually wanted to come. This was like a nice evening on the town. You went and had a nice dinner and a nice steakhouse or something. Then you went to see the wrestling matches. That's unfathomable to me. And Larry was part of that there and the, you know, and the transition. And when that kind of died, I think was when him and Sam both kind of stepped out. But I think Larry was a hell of a, uh, an announcer. He really was. He was so vastly important behind the scenes. I can't underscore how how powerful Sam Mushnick was. Nothing happened in the NWA unless Sam Mushnick said so. And this is when the NWA was wrestling. All due respect to to Jess and Vince McMahon Sr. You know, it just was. And Vern Gagne too. The NWA was it, and he was the number two guy for a for a big chunk of that. What we know as wrestling today probably is not the same without Larry Batisic's input. And, you know, I, I never met the man. I heard him do interviews a few times. He seemed like a very charming guy. He also was very intelligent and very – he understood the business. So much so, Dave Meltzer, who I'm sure a lot of our listeners respect, Dave Meltzer has openly said on multiple occasions, Larry Matisic and Paul Bosch taught him more about the inside workings of wrestling, and I don't mean like exposing kayfabe, about the business end of it than anybody else he's ever – and he worked for Vince McMahon for a year, okay? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you hate Dave Meltzer, blame Larry Madison and Paul Bosch. If you love Dave Meltzer, thank <laughs> Paul Bosch and Larry Madison. I guess is the moral of that story. But yeah, good um, way of putting it. I think I, I, I think that says a lot because I have respect for, you, you know, Dave understands the business side of the wrestling business more than a lot of, of, of fans and people who do dirt sheets. And Larry Madison's the guy that taught him that he's openly said that. So, you know, mm-hmm. he was definitely a historian. If you. If you listen to the interviews, and there's a few of it. Cornette interviewed him a couple times. He's been on a few other podcasts before he passed away. Part of why it worked for Larry is because he understood wrestling, not just in St. Louis. He understood it. That's why he was so effective being Sam Mushnick's right-hand man. But to wind up our talk here on Larry Matisic, one thing that I think is rather interesting is that show, Wrestling at the Chase, that ran for something like 30 years, mm-hmm. uh, it was, of course, NWA-sanctioned shows mm-hmm. they are not on the wwe network that whole series of wrestling at the chase at least what what survives wwe never got the rights to that footage because of course it, it was owned by uh by you know probably by madison quite quite frankly i think um, i think i think i think he did own some of it so that means now his yeah. estate will be handling right. it now whether they sell it to vince or not i don't know Right, uh, but that stuff is available, and I, I, I wish I, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I don't have the 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 website in front of me. But there is a, a website you can go to and order that stuff on DVD, and I would strongly encourage. I've seen a lot of it. It's it was the crown jewel. To yeah. give you an emphasis, this is the best way I can explain how important St. Louis was. Ric Flair said in his autobiography, his first autobiography, when you made it to St. Louis, even if you were the mid card, you knew you had made it. You were no longer just a territorial guy; you were a national star. Yeah. And Harley Race told Ric Flair, you want to take the next step, you want to be in contention for the NWA belt, take the big bumps because none of the vets will take it because they had a, apparently had a very hard ring in St. Louis. You take those big bumps here, the crowd will be impressed, you will get over, and you will get you you will move up in the eyes. And that's exactly what Flair did. And I don't think we need to talk about how Ric Flair's career trajectory went. Yeah, so, hey, I think he did well for himself. <laughs> that's, how, that's how important St. Louis was. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we will be joined by Al Getz to talk Charting the Territories. This is Classic Wrestling Memories, and we'll be right back.
everybody, Bush Bavarian, America's most refreshing beer, presents Joe Garagiola and Wrestling at the Chase. Brought to you every Saturday at 9 and Wednesday at 8 for your enjoyment. No doubt about it, you can't beat fun. Fun and Bush Bavarian. So lift a snow-cooled glass while you enjoy the show. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and podcasting engines across the globe. Geekville Radio. Geekville Radio is the flagship show of GeekvilleRadio.com. News and commentary on the world of geekery. Superheroes, science fiction, TV, movies. If it qualifies as something for nerds or geeks, there's a good chance you'll find it at Geekville Radio. From one quarter of the creative team that brings you the Wrestling Brethren podcast, Geekville Radio is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at GeekvilleRadio.com. Are you looking for a gaming-themed podcast? Then check out You Just Got Fragged. Join host Jared Aubrey and his panel of gaming enthusiasts as they discuss news and accomplishments in the gaming world and, of course, the gripe of the week. That's all at YouJustGotFragged.com, part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family. Welcome back, wrestling fans. Uh, as we told you before the break, we had a real special guest this episode of Classic Wrestling Memories. Uh, this is another one of the people that that I know through my years as a pro wrestler. Um, he was a hell of a manager, uh, a great hand. Was do what what you got to do to be a heel manager? How to get heat and have somewhat of a punchable face? And in the wrestling business, when you're a heel, that's actually a compliment. Uh, we got him on here to talk about one of his new projects that ties really into classic wrestling memories, and that is Al Getz. Welcome, brother. How you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me on the show, and thank you for that wonderful introduction and lead-in. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> we were. I was thinking before we had you on, uh, you know, and, I, and we made contact. Both of us work in the Indies when we did in the South. I don't think we ever worked. I mean, we probably worked a show here and there together. I don't think we ever worked in one place together in a, a long period of time. Can you remember any time like that? I can't recall, you know, our, our paths cross and, but I, you know, I can't remember, you know, actually working against you at a show. We probably were on a show or a few shows together, but never had any interaction, you know, in the ring. No, not that I can remember. And, but then yeah. again, I, I took a lot of chair shots. I took less. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm an in-ring competitor. You're a manager. That's supposed to be the ratio there, but well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I took, I took one, I took one unprotected chair shot to the head from someone I trusted just so I could feel comfortable rejecting that spot later, you know, after the <laughs> was suggested. I was like, you know, to truly say I, I won't, I won't take this. I want to know what it feels like. So I took it from a uh, big slam Vader. And, okay. Uh, I did not enjoy it at all. And so then I felt comfortable in the future saying, no, you're going to hit me on the back of the head. You know, or it's you always, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you've always got that in your back pocket. And I go, look, I've been down this road before, and I don't want to go down it again, ladies. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> well, like I said, we we want to have you on to talk about your your newest project that is not actually in the ring. It's it's more of a virtual thing. It's online. Uh, your your new blog. Why don't you let our listeners know a little bit about what this exactly is and how it ties into a classic wrestling memory thing. Absolutely. So the blog is called Charting the Territories. And aside from my background as a professional wrestling manager, among many other things, I'm also a former actuary. So uh, combining sort of the two of my passions, with, which are statistics and math and wrestling, I have come up with uh, a statistic. I basically invented a statistic. And what it does is it, uh, on a scale of zero to one, 
measures a, a wrestler's average spot on the cards over a period of time with the idea being the main event wrestlers are put in the main events for a reason because they're counted on to draw the house. Then you've got, you know, your upper mid card guys, your mid carders and your prelims. They all serve purposes. They were all, you know, very important jobs, but to put a number on it is sort of neat. So you can see in a given territory, in a given period of time, who the top guys were, who was the, you know, the next level, who were the mid carters and who were the prelims. And you can evaluate a wrestler's path over time and see how that changes. Uh, are they moving up the cards later in their career? Are they sort of, you know, pushed down the cards? It's a neat little tool. And so when I invented this statistic, I gave it the name statistical position over time which doesn't sound great until you look at the acronym for that, and it's SPOT. Spot. So <laughs> the statistic that measures a wrestler's spot is called the SPOT. The first time I looked at your blog and I saw that acronym, I said, that is absolutely tremendous. I loved that. that was, I, 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 it just it kind of it made me laugh and smile, and I just that's, that was, was perfect. I think it's, unfortunately, in the, in the Internet age, and I, you know, even more so with the famous – Arn Anderson promo. I think even the most casual fans kind of get at least a general idea of what spot means, but you take it a step further. And I love that. So that's, that was, I thought brilliant on your part, you know, kudos to you. And, and the first one I looked at was, uh, your very first one, which was Amarillo territory in 1966. Uh, you had Wahoo McDaniel rated very high and our listeners know, cause we did a tribute show to Wahoo. Wahoo and me were very close. He was very helpful and influential to me earlier in my career. Um, what are you finding to be the most difficult or the and the most enjoyable as you break down these territories going back so far, like 66? Yeah, it, it's very time-consuming, and, and the time period I'm focusing on is from 1966 to 1983. After 1983, things get all wanky with the WWF's expansion, and in particular, the remaining territories. Crockett, you know, was doing a deal where he would, you know, bring his wrestlers to you know, to the territories. And, and it's really hard to sort of weed out what means what. And I chose 66 as the starting point because everybody's favorite wrestler, Terry Funk, had debuted in December of 65. So that's Terry's right. first full year. And if you look at who's wrestling in 1966, there's just enough guys that good, you know, knowledgeable wrestling fans of today know. If you, right. go, if you go before that, there's a lot of names that I don't know who that guy is. Um, right. So, yeah, the hardest part is sort of interpreting cards and determining what is supposed to be the main event and what's supposed to be the next. In particular, the WWE, the WWF, uh, up until the early 80s, they often put their main event on before intermission. Now, right. uh, here's here's a quiz. Do you know why that was? Uh, I have, you know, we even we even did a show on Capital Wrestling and the, the the story of WWWF, and I have no idea. So I'll be pleased and <laughs> enlighten me. Um, when Bruno or Backlund or whoever the champion was was, was programmed against a heel, the house determined how long that program would last. If the if the first time you know Bruno faced, let's say Killer Kowalski, if Madison Square Garden sells out, then they mm -hmm. know they're going to come back with it again. So they're going to do a screwy finish in that match and they're going to do it before intermission so that during the second half of the show, Howard Finkel will announce the rematch with the, you know, with the added ah. stipulation for the following mm, month. Okay. Was this, was this only for the MSG shows or did they do this for all the big buildings? Did they do it for this, Boston garden and yeah, Spectrum this, and all of them. 
Okay. To the best of my knowledge, it was for all the major buildings. And and because you'll see that in some towns, Bruno wrestles a, a certain heel three months in a row. In other mm-hmm. places, it's a one and done. And, right. and whoever gets the next title shot almost always wins an underneath match in the first half of the card. And it's usually it's usually Parisi. He's the guy that's the setup guy. We talked about that. The, when we yeah, there was. Bruno. Yeah, they had they had their setup guys, uh, Parisi, Danucci, Guria, and it was often you know half of the current tag team champs. Right, uh, and it was almost always an Italian American guy. So there was that <laughs> that factor involved. In, right. We yeah. you know we we did a show on Bruno, and and I don't know if Bruno gets enough respect. I mean, he gets a lot of respect and credit. I don't think he gets quite enough personally. Just as, and I'm a guy who grew up with the Crockett territory in the Carolinas. And I'm saying that. So, you know, it, Bruno was an amazing run, what he had. I don't know if that'll ever be duplicated ever. Yeah. I, I mean, you look at how long their title reigns were. Imagine, you know, na- nowadays when AJ holds the belt for a year, people are like, all right, enough already. Imagine right. Yeah. Eight mm-hmm. years. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, it's um, one of the things we talked about, uh, sorry to interrupt, but uh, we, we talked about it in the Bruno show where I kind of put it into perspective on a pop culture scale not just wrestling, but pop culture in general. Bruno came along, won the first world title in 63, so right before Beatlemania. So from all the way through to the Beatles invasion, to the you know the acid rock and Woodstock, Woodstock and then really kind of the, the, the dawn of the disco era and kind of the, you know, the Zeppelin hard rock acts that came along in, in that time. Bruno was on top that entire time, which is a bit mind-boggling to me. That's that's effectively an entire generation of him, just him being on top. Of from from year standpoint and from pop culture standpoint, it's just I can't think of anything else. Everybody else that had a, a run like that. No, and in fact, his first run um, outlasted the Beatles. It started before the Beatles, and mm-hmm. it uh, but when it ended, the Beatles had already broken up. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty amazing. 63 to 71. So, yeah, he he outlasted the Beatles. So I, I'm kind of curious. I was thinking this is like, I, unfortunately, I've only, like I said, I've only looked at the first one, the Amarillo 66 one. How are you doing the research for this? Where you? I mean, some of these informations, I mean, I know Seth knows because we do this show. Sometimes results and information can be hard to come by. Wrestling has a bit of an oral history. We're we're all workers. I throw you and me both into that category. It's just it's it's the nature of the beast. So sometimes things are less reliable than others. How are you doing the research? Where are you finding your information? That that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, when it comes to the cards, and and I typically focus on what is advertised as opposed to the results because gotcha. the results are iffy. There are um, there are three online subscription databases that have old article, uh, old newspapers, um, and, right. and they're all a searchable, searchable database. And actually, I only knew of two until a couple of weeks ago when someone turned me on to a third, and it's got mm-hmm. all these newspapers that I haven't had access to, to before, so I got like crazy excited. Um, <laughs> but you, you know, you hone your search skills because you can't just search for wrestling, and then so you have to search for individuals' names. So you have to find wrestlers whose names are unique enough that they're not going to be duplicated by a normal person. For example, Terry Taylor is a very bad name to search for, Um, (laughs) but not unique enough that there's going to be all sorts of spelling mistakes and you're not going to find the full, you know, information. So, and, and, and you gradually just do this search and narrow it down. And then once you find 
a newspaper that has results, you know what day of the week that town runs, what day of the week the newspaper publishes, you know, their ads or their write-ups. And so you can sort of, and, and usually what approximate page number they're on because the sports section is typically in the same place from week to week. So you get better at it as you do the search, but it's very time consuming. And, and then once you do that, then you have to sort of, you know, put it all together and look at each card and figure out, you know, okay, this is the main event. And they're usually listed in, you know, descending order. The main event is listed at the top of the ad and so on and so forth. But sometimes you have to make a judgment call. And then from there, when I do, when I write these up, in addition to the data, I try and include one piece of biographical info per wrestler that is not common knowledge. So, you know, for Wahoo, it necessarily wouldn't be, oh, he played football. It would be, did you know the AFL season ended on December 6th and on December 9th, he, you know, works in Amarillo. Right, right. Uh, And for other wrestlers, uh, you know, I just find something unique. There was a wrestler in Central States in 1966 named the Fighting Marine Dick Marshall. And I had no idea who it was. I couldn't figure it out until I found an article on slam wrestling. And it turned out it was Gorgeous George Jr. Ah. But on doing a little further research, I found out why he decided to bail himself as the Fighting Marine Dick Marshall for this three-month period. On his way out of Arizona, when he was wrestling as Gorgeous George Jr., he lost a hair versus hair match. So he already had the crew cut. Yeah, so he already had had a bald head. So I'm like, all right, I'm the Fighting (laughs) Marine now. Which, of course— you can't get away with now, but back in the territory days, that's how it worked. Yeah. Yes. And and he just used it in central States and I, he didn't use it anywhere else in the best manual. So I scour the internet to find that one interesting fact that hopefully most of my readers haven't already you know, known. Right. Well, I, you know, and I, I just to emphasize the work that Al's doing for our listeners, he, you know, you brought, when you said you're having to do this hard work, Think about this, folks. This is years. I mean, years before Dave Meltzer and and Bruce Mitchell and you know Torch reserve all the all the dirt sheets. It's years before the internet that these results he's looking at. He's putting a lot of work in, man. I, that is massively impressive, brother. I tell you what, that is massively impressive to me. Well, well, thanks. Yeah. So the blog launched in November, uh, as you mentioned. We covered uh, Amarillo in 1966. We actually covered. Four territories, all in the year 1966. We did Amarillo, Central States, Florida, and uh, uh, Jim Barnett's World Championship Wrestling in Australia. Right. And one of the neat things to see is how many wrestlers show up in multiple of those territories in the same year. Uh, Dick Steinborn was in Australia. Yeah. Uh, then he went to Florida, and then he went to Amarillo, all in the same calendar year. And, and there's just so much, you know, flowing of talent in and out. Uh, of these territories, it's fascinating to me to try and track that all, to look at someone's career and say, okay, right. you know, they started in this territory, they were there for four months, and this was their spot on the card. They were a babyface. Then they went to this territory where they worked as a babyface and they stayed in the same spot. Then they went here and they were moved up the cards a little bit. It's also neat to see you can almost get a feel for the level of the various territories. If someone's a main eventer in a small territory like Gulf coast or Portland, then when they go to mid Atlantic or Florida, by looking at what spot on the card they're at there, you almost get a feel for how much stronger one territory is over another. Sure. Sure. It's, it's a very easy way and basis for comparison. You know, we, we talked about, we've talked about before that, um, 
you, you know, it, it, you, and you said this yourself. I uh, when you read the introduction, I think it was your Twitter feed when you first announced this, and you kind of explained what spot was and what that acronym meant. Top guys are top guys for a reason. Mid card guys are mid card guys for a reason, and you will see. As you do your blogs and you look like you like you just said all these territories, top guys are usually top guys everywhere they go. They they know how to draw money wherever they go. You brought up Terry Funk earlier. I mean, Terry Funk, yeah, he could have had the advantage of being a local boy there in Amarillo. And yes, Amarillo was a was a very good territory, though it was smaller, no big cities, very spread out. He was a top guy there. Well, guess what? He was a top guy everywhere he went because Terry Funk just knew how to work, knew how to draw money. And I, I, it sounds like you're saying that you kind of can see that with the top guys at least as you've yeah, done your you, research. You know, you look at Terry. So he started uh, December of 1965, and his his first match in each town was sort of billed as a main event, even if he wasn't necessarily working a main event caliber opponent. His first match in Amarillo was against Sputnik Monroe. Sputnik actually was working as a regular in Tri-State at the time, but just came in for a a two-week or two- or three-week run where he only worked the big towns. They actually did an angle where Funk Terry beat Sputnik, but then Sputnik attacked him after the match to set up Dory Sr., Working Sputnik the following week, but uh, yeah, well, when, Sputnik's a main event guy just everywhere, oh, yeah. but especially Memphis. But yeah, he's yeah. a main event guy. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah. you, you can you can see his his first few weeks, he's he's in the main event, and then they sort of push him a little bit further down, give him some seasoning. He he worked. He would sort of alternate between tagging up with his brother or his father in a top match and then working a established veteran underneath in a singles match to just sort of learn how to work a long singles match. Um, I think he gets brought into St. Louis at some point in 66 um, because of the family connection, but he wouldn't have been brought back regularly unless he, you know, lived up to the potential and to, and to the hype. And, and, you know, once Terry, you know, got, got his, sea legs wet so to speak obviously he knew how to work and could be brought in almost anywhere and he ended up being a guy that could be brought in just for a week to sort of pop a town you know to pop a territory to, to right. build a big house well I, i'm not much of a number numbers guy there's a reason why i majored in english in college uh i'm not gonna <laughs> rely from that but i am a bit fascinated breaking down the metrics so you've got these cards now you've done the research you've got the results from the towns uh <laughs> how are you weighing these things based on you know, win losses or placement on the card. There's, is it a, num- a number system? Or are you giving it yeah. a numerical value or what? It's a numerical value, and, and wins and losses don't matter um, because, uh, for example, so if we if we go back to Bruno, if Bruno beats Killer Kowalski by disqualification, or if Bruno loses to Killer Kowalski by countout, we understand that means the same thing. It's a plot device to get to the rematch. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So and and. and over a long period of time, yes, most main event wrestlers have good win-loss records, but they're also skewed towards baby faces. Baby faces right. tend to win more than heels. So there's not much value in that. So what we do is I take a card and I look at the number of matches on the card. Let's say there are five. Okay. You look at the main event. I give the wrestlers in the main event a five divided by five. So 1.000. Right. And I then... It, the next highest match on the card would get a four out of five, so on and so forth, till the opening match gets a one out of five. Now, right. is this a scientifically accurate method of measuring the gap between matches? No. There are some times when a card is billed as a double main event or a triple main event, and it does feature wrestlers that typically are in the main events. 
Um, and then there are cards where there's just a main event and then a semifinal, which involves guys that are often in the mid card or upper mid card. I'm I'm making no distinction between those now because once you're once you're trying to measure every match individually, it's more time consuming and my individual biases could get in the way. Sure, sure. I mean, I, the the great analogy I, I would have for that, I think I've made it before here. Uh, as a guy who grew up in the Carolinas in the '80s, uh, you look at the the show for me that really turned me on, in my opinion, completely subjective. The greatest big card of all time was was a Starcade '85, and you look at that card. The main events flare dusty, but to say that that Tully and Magnum uh, in the upper mid card in the I Quit match. That did. That was as much as drawing that house, at least the the house gate, not the you know the the the, the closed circuit, but for drawing the live house there in Greensboro in Atlanta, that that card's that that match is just as important. And so that's speaking to what you're talking about with the gap. Sometimes was it the main event? Uh, no, it wasn't. It was the semi main event in because it was you know two towns. It was the semi main event in, in in one of the towns. But it doesn't mean that it didn't have a greater, it didn't have a, as big an effect as the quote unquote main event on the card on the drawing power of the card and i think that's what you're speaking to with you're saying it's not scientifically perfect but you're doing the best of what you can is that yeah does my analogy make sense to you yes and and with a lot of data you know with, with the more data then everything evens out if someone's in a semi-main event and they're typically a main event guy that will mm-hmm. show in the results because they're in main events most of the time one mm-hmm. of the interesting takeaways that i didn't really grasp until doing this a lot is that for any given territory at a point in time, they had several wrestlers on both sides, you know, baby faces and heels, capable of main eventing a card. Right. It wasn't, you know, if this guy's the main eventer, he's a main eventer, you know, every night. Um, there are times, probably peak Dusty, peak Lawler, peak Bruno, where they're always in the main event. But generally speaking, if we talk about Amarillo, uh, at this point in time, you know, your top baby faces are Dory Jr., Dory Sr., you know, right. Wahoo. But that doesn't mean they're in the main events every night. They sort of, you know, rotate in and out. Um, you know, just to give, you know, when you're running a town every week, you got to have, you got to have something fresh. Unless right. you hit on a big feud that's really drawing, then you can run it into the ground. But you know, they just generally they they rotate guys in and out of that main event spot. But when you do these spot rankings for wrestlers. That's where you see, okay, this is the cluster of guys with the highest spot ratings. So those were the guys that were in the main events most of the time. And then there's some guys a little further down that are, you know, towards the upper end of the card. Then you've got your mid carders and then you've got some guys that are mostly working prelims. You can sort of see the hierarchy and the pecking order. And it's hard to explain it, you know, if everyone doesn't quite grasp what I'm talking about. Visit the blog. It's chartingtheterritories.com. The way I graphically represent it, you can see their spot and they're sort of listed in order. And I sort of space it out based on the difference in, in their rankings so that, you know, you can just see guys from top to bottom. And I color coded it so you can tell if they're a baby face or a heel. So it's mm. just a neat little tool of looking at a territory for a point in time and being, okay, who was there and what was their spot? Right. Well, well, I'll be fascinated. And like I said, unfortunately, I've only looked at one. And I don't even know if you've even run into this yet. Uh, I'm sure you will at some point in your research. Uh, when you get to the bigger territories, to the Floridas, to the Carolinas, those, and these are the territories, and even sometimes, you know, WWWF, uh, they would run two to three shows on the same night with, you know, an A, an a crew, a B crew, a C crew. Those, when you start comparing those, I think that would be fascinating to me because. 
I know in some of my discussions, like Ronnie Garvin talked about when he was running, when in Florida in the, in the 70s, he was more happy as far as money goes to be the main event on the B card. Because he could draw more, he could draw more money being the main event on the B card than he could be in middle of the card on the A card, and you would see that when they would have the one big show in you know like in Tampa or something that was there was that was the only show that night for the territory, and Ronnie's you know Ron's his spot on that show would dictate uh, where the real pecking order was in the territory overall. But when you split up the crew of, of you know on one night, he might be a little bit higher on that particular card. Uh, have you had a chance to run into anything like that yet? Um, it's interesting you mentioned Ron Garvin because th- there's a case in, I think it's 1971, with Garvin and Ron Fuller. Uh, as we talked about, I don't you know, differentiate between double main events, main events. And the same thing goes for A-towns and B-towns. Okay, okay. If you If you main event Fort Myers, Florida, which is a B-town, and it's clearly right. such if you look at the lineup, you still get a one a 1.000 for that card. Um, and so in the case of Garvin and Fuller, they were, they were main eventing the B towns regularly. And then right. when you look at the all hands on deck show, like Tampa, they're out of a seven match card. They're typically around second or third. So okay. what I have to ask myself, what does it mean that Fuller and Garvin are main eventing the B towns? more often than the other wrestlers that are typically in the two or three spot in Tampa. So the way I do the spot rankings, they're going to have a slightly higher ranking than those second and third match guys that aren't main eventing the B towns. And to me, it should be that way because just because they're on the same level in Tampa, if they're trusting Garvin and Fuller to main event the B towns more often, as opposed to just, you know, giving it equally to the guys in, you know, that spot, Mm-hmm. That means something. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you're saying that because it, I, I've always said, you know, as much as we want to get the egos involved in wrestling, wrestling is a business. I tell our listeners that all the time. It's about making money. And if Fuller and Garvin are being trusted by Eddie Graham to main event, it's yes, it's a smaller town like Fort Myers. It's still the main event. They're still in that position to draw the house, to make money. So... You know, I I think what you're what you're saying is even with the metrics, it will weigh out based on where they are at the big shows. But because they're because they are main eventing the smaller towns, all those numbers crunch together to where it shows their place in the territory is a little bit higher. Is that what you're kind of saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. I believe in the law of large numbers that the more data you use, everything sort of works itself out. Um, and, and, you know, in the, in the case of some of these territories, I'm using only cards that I have eyes on the original advertisement or program or, you know, newspaper article. There are a lot of online sources that have results for other towns as well. And anytime I've, I've sort of run the numbers using only my data and then rerun them, incorporating data from other towns that I don't use, the numbers are similar enough that I feel good that I'm not missing anything. I'm I'm sure there's going to be one exception to that rule. There's some tiny podunk town in Arkansas where, you know, Joe Blow, who was like, you know, maybe the sheriff. Actually, let's be, oh, there you go. The lawman Don Slatton. We were talking about Amarillo earlier. (laughs) He was a guy, he was the, he was the, the local promoter in uh, one of the towns and, and he was a main eventer there and everywhere else he didn't wrestle full-time but when he was on the cards he was much lower on the card and that's you know that that's that's when you have stroke in a certain town you get to say all right i'm going to be your local promoter but i'm in the main event on my shows right but like you said when you 
weigh that out with all the other numbers across a year, right. his right. spot is much lower in the overall territory. And, and, yes. and that's the way it works. So, yeah. That's a more extreme case because he's got more data in that town and, and he's not full time in the rest of the town. So it's weighted a little more than I would like. But again, that's the exception and not the rule. Exactly. Exactly. I heard you bring up the, the, the Fullers before. I, I tend to mention this a lot of times when, when the Fullers brought up, especially Robert Fuller, maybe more than Don, but it's just like, I don't think Robert Fuller had any teenage years. I think he went, or 20s. He, like, he went right from 18 to 40, somehow <laughs> skipping his 20s and the 30s, and he stayed at 40 ever since for the last you know, 20-some years. <laughs> this is, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the Fullers get it or the Welches get enough credit either. What say ye, Al? I mean, they are very important if, if you really know your history. They are. And, and, and a lot of times people just look at the, you know, continental, southeastern and as the Fullers. But they had their hands in everything else. They were involved in Memphis. You know, you guys uh, you guys recently talked about the Jarrett Goulas split. Uh, uh, the Welch family played a part in that. They had their hands in Georgia that, you know, they had their their fingers in all those territories in the southeast, not just continental slash southeastern. Yeah, exactly. Well, going back to Florida, we, we you were talking about Florida earlier. Of course, before we had you on, we were talking about some of the recent losses that we've had here and from you know wrestling icons and legends and heroes of the past. Um, what were you, what has your research said on Jose Lothario and Dick Slater since they were two of the ones that we talked about? Well, I've always well, perceived both of them as uh, not t- tippy top guys, but definitely upper mid card type guys that could. Could main event if, if called on. Is are your numbers bearing that out or? Um, well, I've looked at Lothario because Lothario shows up in 1966. As a matter of fact, it's his first time in Florida is in January. He had been in Amarillo in December, right. um, left there and came came to Florida, and he pretty much stayed there for the next three years full time. He takes some took some excursions to California and Amarillo, but uh, once he you know once he get, once he uh, saw the weather and probably saw the girls on the beach, he's like, all right, I'm good here. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, I, I read a newspaper article. Um, billing his first match in West Palm Beach coming in, it claimed he had a string of over 50 consecutive victories coming to before coming to Florida. So they were definitely building him up as a top guy, and the spot calculations sort of show that. Yeah, I, I mean, I I think unfortunately, which is why I love what you're doing with your blogs. Part of the reason me and Seth decided to do this show is. Jose Lothario, you ask an average wrestling fan today, who's Jose Lothario? You're either going to say, A, I don't know, or B, oh, that's the guy that trained Shawn Michaels. There's yeah. so much more to Jose Lothario than just those, than just uh, training Shawn Michaels. I'll give you another example, Dennis Stamp. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people say, oh, he was that oh, guy from book. Beyond the Mat, and, and they yeah. say, oh, he was a career jobber, and he most certainly no. was not a career no. prelude no. wrestler. He was, a, you know, he was a main eventer in many places over the years, and, and so... The, you know that my hope for that this is to you know tell those stories of him or a guy like Mike Boyette or a guy you know or guys that just spent two months in every territory known to man like a Don Fargo or a Chris Colt they right. you know they were everywhere and they were they had different gimmicks they had different roles they were you know they were main event guys they were mid card guys they were prelim guys they 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 filled whatever role they were needed to fill at that time by the promoter. And, and, Chris Colt was what twenty five years ahead of his time, probably. He's a lot in my way. He's the southern version of of superstar Billy Graham in the sense that his gimmick and his in ring work and his promo style gimmick. 
That wasn't well, much of a gimmick from what I well, what it, I was, it was it was a gimmick to the fans. It wasn't a, it's yeah, it was it's who he was, you know. So he was an out there dude. But my my, my point is like no one knows who he is, and that's just a crying shame because the guy was so far ahead of his time, you know? Yeah, I, I think there's there's plenty of information on the top guys, the Hall of Famers, the man of sure. Past that, there's there's not a whole lot uh, of information on, let's say, just I'll throw out a name, Klondike Bill. I'm looking at <laughs> one of my blog entries. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think a lot of people know who Klondike Bill was, but they, they don't know, you know, details. They don't know where he worked, what his position on the cards was, no. or, you know, or a guy like Danny Miller, who was uh, Big Bill Miller's brother. Right. Uh, and, and was an a frequent tag team partner of Bill's, but aside from that, had a, a decent career on his own as, as a singles competitor. Right. Take, take, take Knoxville. Who's Whitey Caldwell to anybody outside of Knoxville? Right. But in Knoxville, Whitey Thanks. Caldwell was yeah. the man. Was so, the- I mean, and he drew how many houses there and drew how much money in that town. So it, it's, it, it's one of the, the sad parts of wrestling is because it is an oral history and it is a worked thing. Some of it gets lost, which is why I have so much respect for what you're trying to do. Uh, I've been fortunate as a performer myself to meet and rub shoulders and elbows with a lot of these old timers, these veterans, and hear their first hand uh, uh, stories. It's amazing the respect they have for certain performers that don't necessarily get the publicity like you're talking about. You know, Dennis Stamp's a great example. I, I can know multiple old timers who told me you didn't want to mess with Dennis Stamp. He was a he was a policeman for a while in the Amarillo territory, and our listeners know what I mean when I say policeman, the mm-hmm. old school wrestling term. I, I'd use the term uh, enforcer. I don't know if that's uh, proper, but yeah, policeman enforcer. You know, if you had somebody in a locker room that was call, causing trouble, you know, Dennis took so care of him. This is this is a guy who was who was being asked by Dory Funk Senior. Okay, <laughs> Dory Funk Senior. A great shooter in his own right. This is well documented. This is the guy he's asking to take care of trouble. What does that tell you? <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, Dennis Stamp. And like you said, it's sad. We see him in wrestling, wrestling, you know, or beyond the mat. And that's what most people know. And like, oh, there's so much more to Dennis Stamp than that. You know, so much more. And, but, and for every Dennis Stamp, there's, you know, hundreds of other equal, guys yeah. on equal footing whose stories should be told. Uh, and they're, well, compel- yeah. they're they're compelling stories. Yeah. I mean, it, you can't you can't buy or pay a, a Hollywood writer to write some of these stories. It's just that's the wonderful thing about wrestling. Well, well give our listeners again uh, where where all they can get all this information. Yeah, this, and- this is chartingtheterritories.com, which launched in November, and in in the month of November, I covered 1966 for Amarillo, Central States, Florida, and. Uh, Jim Barnett's WCW in Australia. Uh, this month in December, I'm looking at NWA Mid America, which is uh, the ghoulish end of the territory. This is in 1978, so this is after the split. You guys covered the split recently on this podcast, um, so now we're looking at okay, uh, months later, you know, nine, ten months later, what right. talent is Goulas using? And what's interesting is that at this point in time, Goulas he is still an NWA member. He actually oh, yeah. brings in Harley Race in February for a title defense. But he's using guys that have a history of uh, being, we'll call them outlaw friendly. Uh, right. he, he uses the Sheik and Bulldog Don Kent, who is working for the Sheik. Um, you know, Sheik is another one of those who's kind of sort of an NWA 
affiliate member, but is basically an outlaw. He's using Angelo Poffo. And at this point in time, in the beginning of 78, one of his sons, although shortly into 1978, the other one comes in too. Poffo, <laughs> of course, a year later starts ICW. Um, you've got uh, several wrestlers with outlaw histories. Pez Watley is there at the time, and Pez had worked for Einhorn's IWA. He had worked right. for Luthez's UWA, which ran opposition to Goulas in the mid-70s before the Goulas and Jarrett split. Were the Infernos um, in there at that point? Uh, no, but speaking of Luthez, he actually brings in Luthez, and there's a great story to be told where Thez is being booked for Goulas, and Goulas uh, runs Louisville in opposition to Jarrett. <laughs> and one, one week, Luthez felt uh, felt that he that Goulas had shorted him on his pay, so he no showed an advertised booking and went to Jarrett instead. And you never hear that about Luthez. So what does that tell you? you know exactly I mean? for Luthez, I mean, yeah, to to say I don't, you know, I, I'm I'm. It's not that I don't want to work for this guy. It's I'm going to no show this guy to work for his opposition. Yeah, right. for someone with the status of Luthez to do that. There's there's something going on, but he's using That's, a lot of guys uh, with with histories of, of being in the outlaws or after this point in time, start up their own outlaws. So he's got a sort of a, a ragtag renegade crew. He's also got a lot of young guys that will go on to be big stars. He's got Leroy Rochester, who's a rookie who became known as the junkyard dog later. He's got Lanny Poffo. He's got a young Bobby Eaton. He's got Randy Savage coming in later in the year. He's got Dutch Mantel. He, he's, he's brings in at the end of 1978, the Freebirds, uh, Michael and Terry come in. So he's got, He's got a rough crew, but he's got a lot of young guys that end up becoming pretty big stars. I think with uh, Tony Schiavone's podcast, they could probably do an entire episode just dedicated to Klondike Bill stories. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, all these guys have these wacky stories, and that's not what I'm looking to do with the blog. Like, if, you, mm -hmm. if you're going to my blog looking for a biography of Jose Lothario, I'm not, I'm not the guy. Um, but right. when Lothario shows up in my research, you'll get a feel for where, you know, where he's at, what his position is on the cards and how long he's in this territory, where he was before and where he goes after. And if he ever comes back to the territory years later, that's sort of, I, I, I try and stick with just the facts and, and right. road stories and, and bios. There are plenty of great sources for that. Wikipedia slam wrestling, uh, there are some great uh, writers that that you know, particularly Slam Wrestling is great for biographies of wrestlers. Mm -hmm. They 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 mix in the you know the real important stuff, the you know, uh, as well as the fun little you know road stories of guys. Right, right. So you're not so much the talent themselves, individual in a biography. It's just it's more the territory, the specific region, and how that territory might have changed over the years, or. Yeah, you can look at some of the big shows might have been. You can look at a territory like Central States over a long period of time. It had its moments where it had a lot of really great wrestlers up and down the card, and it had its periods of time where it might not have. And it's neat to see over time. I think you know. I think everyone knows there are certain territories that had certain peaks you look at florida you know mid-atlantic in, in in the mid 70s um but you can also you know you know, see how that changes over time he, you know seth talking about about <clears throat> kind of like bill that's 
that's very true. I, you know, once again, like I said, all my stories are basically, like I said, you don't get the bios from you. You get just the hard facts. The bios are slam wrestling and stuff. My stories I get from the people directly, and everybody that I've talked to was an old timer. Said Connick Bill was a great hand in the ring. He knew how to draw money. You know, he knew he knew how to work. I never heard the stories about chewing panties like Tony Schiavone talks about, but it does make for an entertaining listen. So I mean, I I can't complain. You know, um, it's another whole aspect to the guy I, I never thought of, but. Um, now we kind of talked everything. I just want to get your get your thoughts real quick before we wrap this up. And once again, we do a, appreciate you coming on and talking about this. And we do encourage all our listeners, chartingtheterritories.com. It is a great read. It is fascinating, especially if you want to kind of get into like, like Al was talking about. These guys, as you may not have heard of, realize how important they were to the history of our business. But, but I got to ask you why I got you on here, Al. Um, now that you've kind of looked these down, do you have a particular favorite territory or time period for wrestling in, in particular? I think like most people, it's probably tied into a certain, you know, a, a time period of my life. Uh, I grew right. up, I grew up in the Northeast, um, and was, was, you know, there for the wrestling boom in, in the early eighties. I actually, I wasn't at the first two WrestleManias live, but in both cases I was, uh, I went to a closed circuit. Um, WrestleMania one was in Madison square garden. I went to a closed circuit at Nassau Coliseum, WrestleMania two, Part of it was at Nassau Coliseum. I went to see it on closed circuit at the Garden. But I, my first house show was two weeks before WrestleMania one. I went to Madison Square Garden on March seventeenth, nineteen eighty five. And just for a second, think about that. WrestleMania mm-hmm. is a make or break proposition where Vince is literally putting his whole future into the show, and he runs the same venue two weeks before it, which sounds crazy on so many <laughs> levels. But that's I- Vince. And the, oh, yeah. the main draw for that show was a live Piper's Pit with Mr. T. Oh wow! <laughs> but so and, and I, I think the last match on the card was a six was a, a six man with an assortment of heels against an assortment of baby faces. I believe Jesse Ventura, Big John Studd, Junkyard Dog were in the mix, but I, I don't remember the exact match. There was a uh, a match between Tito and Greg for the Intercontinental Title. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they ran Madison Square Garden two weeks before the show that literally would make or break Vince. Wow. I mean, the, the show that he literally put everything he had up again um, and hot yeah. to, to run. So, yeah. yeah. But, wow. So from what I just said, you're expecting me to say my favorite territory was the WWF, but it wasn't. Oh. Uh, <laughs> while, while we had it on TV, we also had on the Spanish station, Mid-Atlantic. Mm. I didn't speak Spanish. I didn't know a word of Spanish. But even at you know, in, at, as a teenager, I could tell that. This, you know, I enjoyed this more than the WWF product. I, of course, followed the product because all my friends at school did and we had something to talk about. But I also, you know, started buying the after mags and, and learning about all these territories and Continental and Portland and all this. And and even back then, trying to track the movements of wrestlers from territory to territory. Sure. Um, so, I yeah, I didn't have a favorite. I, I wanted to learn everything I could about all these territories. In fact, what wanted, you know, what I wanted to get in the business because I thought it'd be so cool to go spend three months in Dallas, spend six months in Florida, <laughs> go to California. That to me as a kid was the coolest thing. And, and, you know, even managers would do, would do that just like the wrestlers. And, and that's what, want, you know, got me wanting to be involved in wrestling. I am not, at, not athletic in any way, shape or form. So quickly learned it wouldn't be as a wrestler, but found a way to, to get in. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm unbiased. I grew up in the Carolinas in that time period. That's to me the pinnacle of what pro wrestling is. Is that like eighty 
84 ish, about the time Dusty took over the book from Dory from yeah, junior. I, I was to like 88 and the Crockett's, but there's a lot of other strong, I, I think AWA in the late seventies had some really, really strong stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think for me, my favorite period of mid Atlantic, uh, would, would have been between like 79 and 82. So I mean, you're talking from, yeah, like, like Snooka, Valentine, Time, you know, Flair, Flair. Uh, the, 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 the beginning of Piper, or did he not get there till eighty three proper? He I, got I, there eighty two, I thought. I, you, I think you're right. So, so he came the, in around the, the same time that, that Sarge came in, and yeah, Canodal yeah. turned heel, and that was an amazing. And 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 the Briscoes' heel run is such an amazing. Such an amazing and, and often overlooked mm-hmm. piece of history because they the way they they set it up was just it it was logical and it made sense and it wasn't the Briscoes necessarily are you know have just decided to become dastardly it was just it built up over time and 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 then and and they were great as heels and you know it was a, a, you never expected it yeah it, it's we were fortunate enough on our on our maiden voyage episode to talk about the first starcade 83 and we had mike mooneyham on and mike just gave us some fascinating stories because of course being a newspaper writer in this territory mike's well known for knowing all the workers and wrestlers here and he tells some great stories about that whole turn and how how, what kind of convincing it took jack and jerry to get him to do it you know and all that kind of stuff and uh, that was my first live card they were the main event they were baby faces here in the carolinas as as the world tag team champions Okay, and that that was my first like it was in '79, I think it was. Um, so yeah, it's I know I'm biased, I admit that, uh, but I just think that that is, and I even go back as far as you did. I just think Mid Atlantic there it was a crown jewel in the NWA for a long time. I'm 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 I know I'm biased, but it just is what it is. But I, like I said, it doesn't change. I love like late '70s AWA. I love the stuff Memphis was doing in the '70s with whether Lawler was babyface or heel. I right. love. I mean. Uh, if you look at what Dallas did in you know eighty two, uh, right when they kind of were thinking going going international and national before Vince or Crockett did it, so you know it's there's a lot of really good eras. Um, it, what what say you, Seth? What you, I think you you said you got late to the game, but you're a historical right. guy. What is, you've never told me what your favorite era was? In yeah, I, I was actually gonna gonna say that you'd think me being an eighties kid growing up in the Chicago area that I probably would have naturally been watching AWA because they had clearance. I believe it was on WGN uh, when I was growing up, and they did run shows. I believe they even ran some larger shows at Comiskey Park, uh, the, the old Comiskey Park, of course. Uh, but actually, it was more from school. Uh, everybody loved Hogan. It was all WWF. I actually, Trent, I don't think I even told you this, but but it's true. I think the first wrestler that I looked at besides uh Hogan, just because Hogan was everywhere in the marketing. The first guy that I saw walk out and made me think, hey, this guy's cool, was Junkyard Dog. So, you know, <laughs> but but yeah, I didn't start watching regularly until around 1990 or so. Oh, wow. You missed out on a lot of good stuff, but, but fortunately, we, we have a lot of access to that stuff now. Uh, you know, it's... um. <laughs> you you made me think about something and now I'm having a brain freeze. I can't remember. I'm <laughs> who who is your who who do you think in all your research or in you can be very subjective here, Al. Who's the most underappreciated guy in the last I don't know, do you talk sixties, seventies, eighties? Who's the most under undervalued or underappreciated wrestler? I, I, I couldn't limit it to just one. I think like we were mentioning earlier, guys like Dennis Stamp and Chris Colt uh just don't get the credit for their 
abilities. And, and right. you know, even the guys, even in, we're talking about guys, I'm just saying no one gets that Stamp was a main eventer in many places. Even the guys that were just, you know, on the prelims and never got past it, they served an important role. They made a living. It may, might not have been the, the best living in the world, but, you know, you look at what a prelim guy got paid in the 70s for most territories, they were making more unadjusted for inflation than a lot of right. indie wrestlers make now. So, you know, the pay wasn't great, but it was enough to, it was enough that if you're working seven nights a week, six nights a week, uh, you know, wrestling in a territory, you're, that's, that's how you make a living. And right. I think there's just, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of wrestlers who, the, whose stories aren't told past, oh, he was a wrestler for this, you know, for this period of time. He had, he got a push in Florida for a couple of years, but aside from that, it was just a prelim guy. I, I want to know more about that guy. I want to know exactly all the places he wrestled and, mm-hmm. you know, exactly where he was on the card. Was he a babyface? Was he a heel? Who did he team with a lot? Who did he wrestle against a lot? When, when he went to a new territory, was he always traveling with someone? That's one of the things I see a lot of is when a certain wrestler shows up, he, he often comes with the same guy. Or the the classic example is wherever Gary Hart got the book, you knew Don Jardine would show up within two weeks. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, JR talks about all the time how the, the Kentuckians went on the road with the Assassins and, and it just worked right. everywhere. They, you know? Yeah, they are, or when Harley Race got the book in Florida, a, a a reliable hand that he worked with in Kansas City all the time, Roger Kirby, shows up very shortly right. thereafter and gets a good push. And Roger Kirby was a good guy, and I, I don't know if I would say he was pushed in Florida above his ability, but his push seems out of place with with uh, with what I believe his career arc is, and that's because Harley trusted him, and that's that's a lot of times how it works. That's why, if we want to come to later years, that's why Stephanie and Shane were made the focal point of WWE TV during the the war against WCW, is because Vince knew they weren't going to jump ship. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. They, yeah. they, the one people he could trust was his family. So, so yeah. Gary Hart brings in guys he knows he can trust that will have his back, and Harley does the same. And it's it's the same in most bookers. And one of the things we can do with charting the territories is sort of track that. We we know approximate dates of when booking changes are made in the territory. Let's see. Is there a mass exodus of wrestlers? Is there a whole new crew brought in? Yep. Are people de-pushed or all of a sudden pushed um, because th- this new booker likes them? That's something really interesting that no one has really looked at before that we could do if I have the time. But I yeah, don't. I mean, don't. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it, you brought the Fullers earlier. They're a classic example. You look wherever the Fullers got the book, there was a whole new chroma coming in. It was the Fullers group. just was what it was. Yeah, uh, I, told you, this story, I told the story in another podcast. Eddie Gilbert got the book in Global. And yep. uh, he he walks in the dressing room and all the guys that had wrestled in Texas for a billion years, like Black Bart, you know, whoever are there. And and the legend, as I've heard it, you know, through a, you know, secondhand a couple of times, is that Gilbert looked at them all and said, the Tennessee boys will be here an hour. Get the f*** out. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, it, you brought up another name earlier, and I, I know we, we're taking a lot of your time, but you brought up like Mike Boyette. A lot of people don't know who hippie, the hippie Mike Boyette is, the California hippie Mike. Michael yeah. Hayes, they've heard of him. He's mm-hmm. they, That's his favorite wrestler. He probably had the biggest influence on him wanting to become a wrestler of anybody in the business. But so many, so people have, have heard of him. Susan Green, my mentor, tells a great story about a night her and, and Mike Boyette had each other's back in a fight because there was a riot in Mobile. You know, I mean, so it's, it's mm-hmm. those are the kind of things, you know, people don't know who Mike Boyette is. Uh, I, I'm going to ask you one more. 
because he had a lot of influence on my career. Uh, have you had had a chance to run into, across uh, Wild Bill White yet in any of your research? Um, I, other other than his, his run in Mid Atlantic, and he po- he pops up in several other places as well. Yeah, but he was a guy. He had he was in a certain spot on the card, and for the most for the most part of his career, he was occupied that same spot wherever he went. But he was there, and he had a long career because he was trusted to yep. be able to have a good match. He probably. I, I don't know specifics of who he worked against, but I'll bet you toward in the latter part of his career, he was working a lot of younger guys in prelims and they were younger guys that would go on to have, you know, big careers and move on to bigger and better things. But he was probably a guy trusted to teach them how to work a 25 minute match. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm no I'm a nobody. I'm a I'm a J. Brown indie guy. That guy taught me so much both in and out yeah. of the ring. I mean, crazy train doesn't become crazy train without him. You know, and those are the kind of guys that you're trying to put some shine and some light on. Bill's the one that had me start doing comedy, switch from trying to struggling to be a heel to, hey, be a baby face. You've got something here. You know, um, all those things are Bill. And I mean, this is the be- this is the best thing I can say about like Bill. Me personally, having had the, the, the blessing to be in the ring with a lot of really good guys, a lot of Hall of Famers. He was as good and as light and as easy to work with as a Ricky Morton. And I don't think I can give a bigger compliment than that. I think even the casual fan knows how uh, basically working punkies a night off, you know, right. and Bill, Bill could be like that. You know, I know that once again, personal story, Ricky Steamboat told me man to man. He said, Bill White was one of his favorite guys to be in the ring with. Cause he knew it was going to be an easy night and they were going to get over. That's coming from Ricky Steamboat. I, I don't think I can give you a, a higher compliment, but that's this one guy I'm talking about that you're putting the shine on. And, and I think that is awesome. It, it gives a whole new perspective to fans who uh, don't appreciate or just don't know about these guys and where they really fall. And our, our business has such a rich history that a lot of it's forgotten, and you're putting a shine on some of that forgotten stuff. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, as brother to brother, as a guy who's in this business, I appreciate that so much, man. That 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 is so cool. And well, I know it's yeah, a labor thanks. of love. It's, it's all it's it's a labor of love. It's always been something I wanted to do. I I. In years past, I always I didn't do anything numerically, but I sort of tracked, you know, when guys were in each territory, when they first show up, when they left, so on and so forth. Um, and now to be able to uh, attach some sort of number to it, I think gives a lot more context. I think right. there's plenty of wrestling content. You look at a, a place like a wrestling site like WrestlingData.com. They've got you know probably millions of match results, but there's no context in right. what. To me, what charting the territory does, it, it adds that layer of, of, you know, almost another dimension of looking up, you know, old results. Now it's okay, you know, Bill White. All right, where was he? He was in Mid Atlantic. Was he a face or a heel? Okay, he was a heel. Where was his spot on the card? All right, he's in the earlier matches. And who who are his contemporaries at that time? Who else is in the early matches? Oh, that guy. I've heard of him. He went on to go to Florida and and, and get a push and you know become a tag you know com- t- become a tag champ. And you you go down the wormhole so to speak, and you you snake around to all these you know the the geography of the world. These these guys wrestled all over the country and all over the world, and over the span of years had different roles in different spots. And it's just neat to sort of follow that. And and it, like I said, it adds another dimension to things. But Al, you mentioned one name there that kind of fits with what we're talking about with people with maybe misunderstood careers, and that was uh, Pez Watley. And I you know, just said I didn't really start watching till the 90s, so my main familiarity with Pez Watley was him as a enhancement guy in the weekend shows, you know, essentially 
working the squash matches. But so I missed out on this whole run of Shaska, and I missed out on the the run he had in the territories before that. But two other names, I think, that fit what we're what we're talking about are guys like George South and Mike Jackson, who probably nine times out of ten were better than the guys that they were in the ring with. But you know, they were carpenters; they were able to make these guys look great. And there's always a place for for people like that. Yeah, Jackson worked a handful of matches for Goulas in 1978, uh, which is, we're focusing on this month at chartingtheterritories.com. You talk about Watley. He, uh, he went to University of Tennessee Chattanooga. So, so when he debuted, I think it was for Goulas that, you know, it was a, a hometown boy makes good kind of a deal. Um, he, a couple of years into his career, he seems to start working mostly for outlaw promotions. So, you know, you wonder if he, he got, he he was unhappy with his pay or with his position on the cards and decided to leave. Um, but he, he starts working for a lot of outlaw guys. He shows up for Goulas in 78, um, you know, and then he ends up in mid Atlantic and he has a, a nice little run in mid Atlantic, but he, again, he was in a lot of other places as well. He can sort of, you sort of follow his career around and, and see where he goes. It's, it's a neat little thing. Uh, uh, George South, I think doesn't show up till, after my cutoff period, which is 83, I'm not sure if he started before then or not, not, but if he did, it was as a, it was in his role that he's most known for in mid Atlantic. I think George's rookie year was 84. George trained my longtime tag team partner. That's so once again, it's a personal thing for me, but I think you're uh, right. I think George. Fun, yeah. I'll tell a George South story. You know, you never, you never saw him do promos on TV cause he was just an enhancement guy. Uh, he worked, <laughs> he worked I worked a show with him for Bo James and Bo wanted him to go out and cut a promo. Oh, I'm not going to say it was the best promo I've heard of all time, but I was absolutely positively blown away by how good, George South, his promo was. So, so that's the other thing you understand. You know, you talk about Bill White. He might not have ever been in a position to get on the mic, but I'll bet you if he did, he was really good at it because these guys just, you know, they were they were at TV, so they heard all the great talkers of their era do promos, so they probably knew how to do it. But, yeah, oh, South South cut an amazing promo on, on this show for Bo that, I, that just blew me away. Did it last 20 minutes or, or 15? 17. <laughs> 17 and a half, I think. Uh, it was. Uh, I, I got a lot of love for George, but boy, you hand brother a mic, and he's going to go for a minute. He, he's, he's, he doesn't get a chance to do it often. So I used to, when I first started, I was really out of shape, and I used to get blown up doing promos. <laughs> and one time they, they decided to pull a rib on me. They told me I was going to do a promo, and then someone was going to come jump me from behind. So, so <laughs> And to talk until that happens. So I'm talking. And I'm talking, and at the point where I figure they're going to send this person who was Brian Hildebrand, uh, Mark Curtis. Curtis, w. yeah. Mm-hmm. By the time I'm expecting him to, to hit me from behind, nothing. They made me keep going and going, and I was so out of breath and blown up, I might have <laughs> like gotten down on one knee at one point, maybe sat down. And I just was totally out of breath and lost it. And they finally, out of uh, pity, sent uh, Brian to uh, get me from behind. <laughs> well, be glad I didn't try to shoot in on you because he might have been small, but he was a hooker. So he, he, he did give me a blo- he did give me a bloody nose in the ring. Oh. In, 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 <laughs> no inadvertent shock. or probably my fault, I'm sure. But dude, if brother was was four inches taller and thirty pounds heavier, he'd have been a junior heavyweight champion. But sadly, he was a little too small. But boy, he was a hell of a referee. He was but, a, he was a great ref. He uh, he worked. I, I think a lot of people know he worked the Ninja Turtle gimmick. For oh yeah, and on indies, but he also worked a uh, mask gimmick called El Tecnico Rudo. 
which was a lot of fun for him to do. <laughs> okay, in, isn't in, that in, in the late 90s. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> pretty, pretty much, pretty much. Well, I, I'm surprised no wrestler ever did a lucha gimmick where they call themselves the son of my brother. That would be, you know, El Hio del Mon Hermano. Oh, yeah, like, that's right. it's like an inbred hillbilly gimmick, but you know, with a lucha with a lucha tint tint to it. See, but with a whole inbred hillbilly gimmick, that if you're working Kentucky or Tennessee, you got to be a babyface, right? Arkansas. <laughs> but anyway, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a southerner. I'm not going to rip on us too much. Well, for our listeners, one last time, let them know where they can they can check out this wonderful blog, and and also let them know you know where you can be reached and 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 that kind of stuff. The website address is chartingtheterritories.com, which is also the name of the site, Charting the Territories. So I decided if I'm going to call it Charting the Territories, I might as well have that be the website address. It makes things really easy. You can also mm-hmm. catch me on Twitter, where I shamelessly plug uh, <sighs> this site at Al Gets Wrestling. That's Al, A L, Gets, G E T Z, Wrestling. And that's because nobody gets wrestling like Al gets gets wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> Al, brother, I appreciate you so much coming on. Remember, listeners, chartingtheterritories.com. Uh, we appreciate you so much for coming on. And, and I, once again, all my thanks for all this hard work you're doing because it means a lot to me being a no-name guy myself that, that you're giving people like that a chance to get a little bit of shine. And brother, yeah, well, we- thank you for having me on and, and letting me spread the word about charting the territories, which can be found at chartingtheterritories.com. Sorry, I had to get oh, one last plug in. It's okay, man. <laughs> it's okay, brother. Plug away. I, I was going to say earlier, and Seth knows this, you know this. Put yourself over, kid, because you're the only one in the business who will, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> All right, brother. We appreciate it. We'll catch you down the road, man. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. You're right. That really was a great conversation. I mean, I learned a lot just hearing Al talk about his blog. And I did bookmark blog, chartingtheterritories.com. And you will see it linked in the show notes at classicwrestlingmemories.com slash 24. And that brings us to the end of this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. If you like what you heard and you're hearing us for the first time, give us a review. You can post right on the website itself, classicwrestlingmemories.com. We are also on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, and you can find us on Stitcher or really the podcasting device of your choice. And we are part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast. That The Wrestling Brethren is our sister show that talks modern wrestling. And, and Train, if anybody wants to get a hold of you to talk St. Louis or Larry Matizic or any of the subjects we've talked about at all over the years, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at crazytrain underscore JB. Go ahead and just give me a follow. I love to talk about uh, classic wrestling memories. Um, horror, of course, as you know, I'm the I'm also the the host of Examining the Dead, presented by Geekville Radio. Geek stuff. Uh, it, we're in the middle of the bowl season. I love college football. Disappointed that my Georgia Bulldogs kind of let me down this week. Uh, but we're still going to a good bowl, and and I'm gonna have to go roll tide. I'm gonna be a homer and pull for the SEC and the national championship. Um, also give me a follow on Spotify, also at crazy Train underscore JB. Since we've been talking a lot of old time stuff, uh, I'm going to suggest a playlist I have up that just recently put up called crooners delight. It's nothing but crooners, which I know I'm a headbanger and a Southern rock guy, but crooners are my, um, they're my musical guilty pleasure. So a lot of Frank mm-hmm. Sinatra, a lot of Dean Martin, Tom Jones, Wayne Newton, you guys get the idea. It maybe to kind of get you in the mood for that old timey stuff. Um, of course, that those will also be posted in the notes. And on a personal note, I uh, want to thank 
Al for coming on. It was fascinating. I bet you'll never look at Pez Watley the same again, will you? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and uh, also uh, for the three brothers that we lost and we talked about a little bit, um, there's so many of those guys out there. Uh, nobody gets out of here alive to quote the doors. Uh, we're losing these guys. Um, it's sad. Uh, personal thanks from the crazy train to them. All of these guys inspired me either directly or indirectly to want to become a wrestler and to, to join this crazy brotherhood I'm a part of. Uh, there would be no classic wrestling memories without these kind of guys. And I strongly encourage our listeners to go to things like chartingtheterritories.com. Check it out. Find the old tapes. Go to the network. Go to, to YouTube. What we have today doesn't exist without that. And you might be surprised. You might actually be entertained by some of it. So I'll just leave it with that. And if you do follow us or subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, give us a review. As I like to say, the only thing I ask is be honest. If you think we're doing great, tell us we're doing great. If there's things we could do better, tell us what we could do better. Because I'm always looking for ways to enhance or better this podcast. So definitely let us know what you think of the shows and how we can improve. When we come back next time, uh, we'll be... Wow, already on volume 25 here, and we got several subjects that we could talk about. We are, we are going to talk Harley. We've been, mm-hmm. pre- we've, been, we've been teasing that for almost six months now, and things have fallen through. Harley Race is getting his own show, and it will be soon, probably the next one. But um, he's another one of those, sadly. I don't know how much longer we're going to have him, so I'm hoping to get that one in before it becomes a tribute show, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Yes. Yes, good way of putting it. So this has been Classic Wrestling Memories. We'll talk to you folks next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Brothers who have rocked the mat world is on Wrestling at the Chase today. Hello, I'm Larry Matisik, and Carrie Von Erich is back in St. Louis. Carrie may well be ready to zoom right to the top, just as his brothers Kevin and David have done. Carrie is one of that new breed of professional athletes, only 20 years old, but tremendous poise and great skills. Carrie Von Erich on Wrestling at the Chase today, and Mickey Garagiola will introduce the opening bout right after this.